For all of our visitors, welcome to Worship on the Water. Uh, I'm Jim, one of the pastors at Dillon Community Church. Uh, so we're just glad you're here. Those of you from Texas, we're glad you're here as well. I didn't use to, I was raised in a tradition that didn't believe in purgatory until I went to seminary in Dallas. And I've discovered there is a purgatory. It's called Texas. That's for my Texas friends all sitting up there. And a few others scattered around. <laughs> That's right. Okay. We're half to two-thirds of the way through the summer. So let's just pause for a moment and take a look at where we've come. We do a short summary every week to kind of put this in the perspective of a much larger discussion that we've been having as a church. So about a year and a half ago now, I don't know, we did a study of Leviticus in our church on Sunday. And um, I know some of you are going, Leviticus, really? Leviticus is worth reading. Leviticus is such a brilliant book. It, uh, it captures the theology of the entire Old Testament and properly understood, I would argue, the whole Bible. It starts off with a real simple idea in Leviticus 1. God said to Moses, say to the Israelites, whenever anyone wants to offer a sacrifice, here's how they should do it. It's an invitation into a relationship. That's what Leviticus is. It's an invitation into a relationship. Most people know it as a whole book of commands. And there are commands, but there's commands on how to do things so that they're not like the other nations. It's not a command on, it's not a series of commands that you have to do these things. Uh, he doesn't start off with that um, every one of you should offer sacrifices. He says, no. He said, if you want to offer a sacrifice, and that actually opens the door just very gently to the Trinity. And this idea of the Holy Spirit, which doesn't come until much later, he's there, he's just quiet. And so the idea of the Holy Spirit is actually latent in all of these passages. Because can you imagine offering a sin offering every time you sinned? For some of you, that'd be all day long. In fact, for all of us, it would be all day long, honestly. And he doesn't say that. What he says is, whenever you decide that you want to offer a sacrifice, it's an invitation, here's how you do it. And so right off, from the very beginning, we have a very slight implicit view that the Spirit of God is there to begin that convicting process. How else would you know when to do it? So Leviticus, I've argued for a year and a half, becomes a blueprint to understand the New Testament. Not in all the commands and the rituals. Those were all done away with at the cross. Ephesians argues that. And so we've been studying for the last year since we finished Leviticus that uh, this idea of a blueprint means it's a house. It's a building. That's what a blueprint's all about. It's a building. Uh, but it takes a builder to build the house that's what the Holy Spirit does starting at Pentecost. He comes. That's why Peter and Paul can use language like we are being built into a spiritual house, a spiritual temple, a spiritual building, that sort of thing. Moses was a keeper over the house. All that language about house and building, that all comes right out of the Old Testament, out of Leviticus. So the Holy Spirit is building this house, and that's what we've been looking at. So this summer, the theme is on uh, goodness, 
Scott McKnight, one of my favorite New Testament scholars, has been pushing this narrative lately of a church called Tov. The Hebrew word for goodness is Tov. It's used over 700 times in the Old Testament, so it must be important. It's got to be important. So let's start with a couple of real simple ideas. When, when one of the things I've learned in all of my time in uh, coffee shops, bars, talking to people, somehow, I don't know how this happened, I don't know why it happened, but we've communicated this image of Christianity is, is very judgmental. And God is a condemning God. I've asked thousands of times now uh, over a coffee or a drink, so tell me your view of God. Do you think of God as a very loving God, a kind God, a generous God? Or do you think of a God that's just waiting? Just waiting for you to cross that line. And you know what? Thousands of times, that's been the answer. Do you know what God is like? Let me read the verse to help you understand it. Here's what God is like. Love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. God can only give what He has. This is a description of God, the fruit of the Spirit. Listen to these wonderful words, love, joy, peace, patience, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. My view of God is not a God up there at all like this. And another week or two, we're going to talk about justice. And there is justice. has to be taken care of. That's, that's part of the world. But at the same time, my view of God is a God who sits up there and, and just smiles. He smiles at our feeble attempts to make sense of this incredible book. I argued last week, you may remember, that worship, what worship is, worship is a response to all that God has done. You see, Jesus comes as our high priest. Why? Because we're not very good at being high priest right now. In fact, we can't do it. We can't do it without his help. The Spirit comes and fills us, and the Spirit lives with us and guides us and teaches us. We're going to see that in just a minute. He teaches us. And so the Spirit intercedes for us with warning, with words, groanings too deep um, you ever get to the point where you look at all the mess in the world and you just go, I do this. God, I don't even know how to pray. There's so much going on. I don't even know where to start. I'm so grateful for the Spirit who does know. So you have Jesus. He's defending us against Satan's accusations. He's our high priest. He's worshiping the Father the way we will one day in eternity. And the Spirit is interceding for us because we don't really know what to say often or how to say it. And so all that worship is, what worship is, is our grateful response to say, thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. That's why we end with, con- with uh, communion for that reason. So that's a picture of God right there is in Galatians 5. That's who God is. He's filled with love and joy, goodness, faithfulness, all those things. So where have we come this summer? We've talked about a healthy church. And the reason why I decided to tackle this concept of goodness, I I love what Scott McKnight did with it. I had a chance to visit with him about it, is that uh, you you guys all know what's going on around the, the West. Pastors getting exposed and all kinds of bad stuff like that. 
And I've said many times, my prayer has been, Lord, clean house. If that's what we have in the clergy and the pastor, just clean house. Okay, get it all, root it all out. And so we're asking the question based on goodness is what does a healthy church look like so we're not, we don't fall into those traps? And so we look, for example, at empathy. Empathy and compassion, okay? The ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes, but go beyond that with compassion and take care of them. You know, you know what the opposite of empathy is? Entitlement. You can't have both. You can learn to be loving, empathetic, compassionate, or you could be entitled. You see, empathetic people, loving people, they're grateful for what they get. Entitled people are angry about what they don't get. And we're told to be empathetic. Jesus was empathetic everywhere he went. The woman caught in adultery by law should have been stoned. Talk about empathy and forgiveness. We've talked about grace, genuine grace. Grace, by definition, is a gift, and it's reciprocal. In other words, you get something, and you give something back. Under the Roman law, that was part of the patronage system. A wealthy person would give you a gift, and then you were expected to be faithful to them and loyal to them from then on. You didn't do that, you're in trouble. Well, it's not much different in the Bible. For by grace, are you saved? You know the verse? Through faith, it's a gift of God. You know the very next verse? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared ahead of time. He doesn't demand it, okay? He's not going to stop loving you, but life isn't going to be very pleasant for you. I've argued many times that grace is a product of the cross. Joy is a product of walking faithfully by the Spirit. I just read that. So you all get grace, but if you want joy and all those things on top of it, walk faithfully. And so God gives a gift. It's called grace. And then he expects us to turn around and use that gift for others. We have been blessed financially so we can bless others. We have been blessed with sympathy and compassion and empathy so we can turn around and share that with others. We have been loved and forgiven so we can turn around and love and forgive others. That's how it works in Christianity. You see, it is reciprocal. We receive a gift, and we turn around and give it. We do. That's what we do with it. These are all characteristics of a church that's healthy, putting others first before the institution. I brought up last week, all of you, or not all of you, but I'm sure several of you know churches where theology takes priority over people. You're not like us. Stay out. Oh, you're involved in that type of sin? Yeah, you're not welcome here. And that's, that's what the Jews were guilty of. They went so far as to put a, a, a barricade, fence around the core part of the temple that said Gentiles enter at the risk of your life because we're going to take it. You're not like us. Stay out. How did that make it into the church? Jesus said in Luke 6, do not judge, do not condemn. It doesn't mean we don't deal with sin. We deal with sin all the time. We used to do it over coffee, not through church discipline. <laughs> because sin doesn't make you happy. And a bunch of you have come to me struggling with sin. All I got to do is wait. That's all I got to do is be patient. Only the Holy Spirit can convict, redeem, and transform. He 
He's the only one. He's not going to share that with me, with the elders, with any of the pastoral staff, the staff at all. I mean, nobody. He's going to share it with you. So I get the easy job. I just walk the road and be patient. And eventually, the Spirit does His work, and you're unhappy. And that's some of the most delightful coffees. I'm struggling with sin. Will you help me? So this week, I called it the goodness of transparency. But really what I want to talk about is truth. But I hate using the word truth because for most of you, in a uh, post-intellectual, a post-modern Western mindset, that means facts, knowledge, things like that. So let's start with another simple idea. Truth, by definition, is so much bigger. Truth is life-giving. If it's not life-giving, then it's deceit. That means it's satanic. When we use truth to hurt people, we are acting on Satan's behalf. Because truth, by definition, is life-giving. It's interesting that uh, it's a key word in the scriptures to describe Jesus, the gospel, salvation, as well as the Christian way of life. This is 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now listen to the, to the linkage here. Okay? I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made on behalf of everyone. Everyone. For kings. For all those in authority. You shouldn't laugh because our president have COVID. You should be on our knees. Saying, God bless this person. Give him wisdom. Protect him. For all those in authority. That we, this is the reason we have this prayer. So that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. I've said many times that what happens in Washington with the Supreme Court, it's above my pay grade. I'm not going to worry about it. I'll let the Lord handle that. That's his job. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. There it is. You see, truth, by definition, is life-saving, life-giving. It generates life. And when we use truth, when we weaponize the gospel, when we weaponize truth to hurt people, we have just become an agent of Satan. That doesn't mean we don't deal with real issues. We do deal with them. But we'll never use the gospel or truth. We should never use it that way, as a weapon. You're not like us. Stay out. You're not welcome in our church. I can't think of anybody that's not welcome in our church. What does John 14 say? Jesus says he himself is the truth. I'm reading a book by Miroslav Wolf, another one of my uh, favorite theologians. It's called For the Life of the World. That's out of John. Jesus dies for the life of the world. Okay, capture that. For the life of the world. Theology that makes a difference. And here's what he argues. The Christian faith is primarily about the relationship between God and the world. Did you get that? The Christian faith is primarily about the relation between God and the world, more specifically about the true life in Jesus Christ 
who is the revelation of God and the perfect example of humanity captured in one person. We've said that over and over and over again. We can look to Jesus and see what a true human looks like, what we are becoming. You're either moving toward Christ and becoming more human, or you're moving away from Christ and becoming less human. Don't be fooled. You can't stay static. The basic direction of one's life is ultimately a person's own responsibility. I agree with that 100%. Praise Jesus, I'm not your Holy Spirit. You don't want me to be. It wouldn't be nice, and sometimes it wouldn't be kind or pleasant. It's your responsibility. That's the role of the Spirit is to guide you. But he goes on. But not all preferences are equal, and the purpose of Christian theology, which is what we do every week up here, is to critically examine such preferences, because you're all choosing preferences, and our job is to critically examine that and offer compelling accounts of the Christian vision of a genuinely flourishing life. We were made for love, joy, shalom, patience, goodness. This is what we were made for. And our job is to present a compelling account of that vision of what it's all about. He goes on a little bit later in the book because he's talking a lot about truth. After all, we are, secu- we are seeking to articulate the true life not our preferred kind of life. The true life. Truth is more than facts. It's truth that brings life. Every one of you has two theologies. Every one of you. You have a formal theology... That's what you say you believe. My favorite example is Philippians 2. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. That's your formal theology. And then you have your real life theology. What you actually do. How many of you complain? Let me see. My hand's up. Ah, you just all admitted to being hypocrites. Let's be honest, we are. I love sitting in a bar. Somebody says, I don't like going to church because they're full of hypocrites. I go, yeah, yep, I know, me too. So are you. (laughs) You just admitted that, right? And so what happens is the further apart these two theologies are, the more we are telling the world we don't really believe our own theology. If our divorce rate is the same as culture, we're telling the world we don't believe our theology about marriage. That's what we're telling them. When we start bringing these together and they get closer and closer and so we start developing greater integrity, we begin to experience more of this love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. That's what happens. And this is hard to do because you know what? This is where transparency comes into the picture. Right here. It has to be brought to life. It has to be brought, excuse me, not to life, to the light. 
It has to be brought into the light. That's John's argument. All through John is that inside we have this, we have these hidden spots that are darkness. I don't want you to see the inside of my soul. Some parts of it you can see, but other parts I don't want you to see. Because like you, I have dark spots that I'm working on. And the only way for these things to really be dealt with is that this darkness, these, these things hidden in here, can get brought out into the light. That's truth. That's why transparency is a significant part of a healthy church. That's why we do Lent. Our church does Lent every year. All of your churches have different traditions. If you're in a Jewish community, you do Yom Kippur, where the whole community gets together and confesses their sin. You think of Nehemiah, right? You think of Nehemiah. You think of all these people, the greats in Scripture. How do they start their prayers? Lord, I am sorry for the sin of our nation, and more importantly than that, I'm sorry for my part in it. I can't blame our president. It doesn't matter who the president is. That doesn't bother me. I can't blame our president for me. Can we blame me for me? I can't blame you for me. I can only blame me for me. And the good news is, you can't blame me for you. (laughs) And so transparency is that quality in a life where we take the time and we lift up before the Lord our sin and we're honest about it. Many years ago, when I was in seminary, I took a class, and uh, it was my first class in a doctoral program. It's now my friend, but he wasn't at the time. There was another student who was at the end of his time, and this is his last class. And I'm not sure I've ever met a more obnoxious guy. Know it all. You know the joke. You can always tell a Dallas graduate, you just can't tell him much. Any other Dallas grads here? Okay, that means I'm the only one allowed to use that joke. You're not allowed to. <laughs> and this is a guy, I mean, after, after, you know, eight years of Greek and five years of Hebrew, I get it. They, they pack so much stuff up here. I didn't know there was that much room up there. It's so easy if we're not careful to become conceited. And this guy was, he was really conceited. He's very overweight, obnoxious. So I went to uh, the professor, of the, and I said, hey, I want to talk to you about uh, Bill. It's not his name. And he goes, the words I never want to hear ever. Oh, yeah, we all know about Bill. I can't think of anything more embarrassing to get to the end of life and to have the name Jim, and you all go, oh, yeah, we all know. And I said, oh, so you know about Bill. What would you say when you talked to him? As in my professor, remember, I'm just a student. And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm sure you've talked to him being a Christian. And he said, no, I haven't talked to him. I said, you haven't talked to him? I said, no. And I go, well, that just makes me not trust you. And he said, why is that? And I said, because I don't know what you're thinking about me. Well, I'm not thinking anything like that about you. And I said, yeah, but how would I ever know and trust you? Because you don't have the courage to tell him. I'm going to go talk to Bill. So I went and had a conversation with Bill. It was about 60 seconds. Thanks, but get out of my life and don't come back. All right. 
That's it. So they, uh, I went into the registrar's office because I was in the doctoral program, and they, they needed another class, a Greek class, so they wanted to put him in there. I said, I think it's a mistake. Uh, and they said, that's okay, so put him in there anyway. So on thir- Tuesday, he starts out with 30 students, and on Thursday, he had four. So apparently, I wasn't the only one that had this experience. We had to have six for the class to run, so it didn't go. Next semester, they wanted to do it again. So if he was here, he'd be laughing right now. So they uh, put 30 students in on Tuesday. Thursday, he had six. He had the minimum to go on. Okay, fast forward 10 years. I haven't seen him since. 10 years later, I'm at a, one of our conferences. We have uh, conferences that Christian theologians and scholars and pastors like to go to. Uh, they're really fun. We hear theology read eight hours a day uh, for several days. I mean, it's really wonderful. You'd all love it. And uh, so I'm walking down the hallway. And you know how you kind of do the dance? We're a hotel full of people, thousands of people. And I, I'm thinking about something. And I'm intuitively aware I'm doing this with somebody. I look up, and there's this real thin guy. And I look up, I go, Bill? He's just standing there grinning. He says, you remember me? I say, I do. And up comes this, I found out later, she's from Jamaica, very dark-skinned, gorgeous woman who walks up, gives him a kiss, and says, hey, honey. And he says, uh, this is Jim Howard. And she says, you're Jim Howard. And she walks over and gives me a hug, a big hug. I'm completely lost. And she's laughing. She goes, you have no idea what's going on, do you? And I said, no, I don't. She said, you remember that class where Greek class, you started with 30, ended up with six. I go, yeah, I do remember that. And she said, I was in that class. I was a student of his. And she said, uh, he started pursuing me, which she wasn't supposed to do, but hey, it happened. And um, he started pursuing her, and she wanted nothing to do with him. Finally, one day, she steps to him, and now he's standing here listening to her recount this story with a big grin on his face. Finally, she says to him, look, I don't even like you. I stayed in the class because I felt sorry for you. You're arrogant. You're conceited. You're very big. You don't even smell good. And I said, you said that to him? He goes, and he said, she said, his eyes filled with tears, and he said, I know. You're the second person to tell me that. And I don't want to be that way. I don't know how to be different. He's pastoring a church now. They're married. Okay. And, and that started because I just went to him and said, hey, dude, think for a moment about what you're acting like in the class. Get out of my life and don't come back. And the Lord used that. You see, I was the first person. That's what transparency is all about, is where we speak the truth to one another. Ephesians 4. We speak the truth to one another. We create an environment that is safe enough that any of you can come and talk to us and say, I'm struggling with sleeping with another woman. I'm struggling with drunkenness, drinking too much. I'm struggling with, you fill in the blanks. It doesn't matter to me. I've said many times, I don't personally care what sin you're struggling with, except as a, a pastor to know how to help guide you. Because every human needs a pathway to redemption, everyone. A pathway to redemption, all right? And sometimes the Holy Spirit does it and you come this way. And sometimes we go, to, we go that way and say, hey, is everything okay? I see you and your spouse are struggling quite a bit. What can we do to help you? That's transparency. And when a church begins to hide facts and create false narratives, 
and I've already said this before, protect the wrong people. You know what? That's, that's a sure side of a church heading into toxics, toxicity, where people get hurt, and they get hurt terribly. You know, every year, and this is an announcement, every year we post on the website our proposed ministry plan, our proposed budget, which uh, the members are going to vote on. It's a larger one this year than normal. Uh, we put down a note of every change in the budget and why we changed it. We put the bios of our, our new elders that have been nominated for you to vote on on the website. That's on the website now. It went on this, uh, this past week. So for those of you that are members, we have uh, August 27th or 28th, whatever that Sunday is, we have a congregational meeting right after this service to talk about those and vote on them. You can go look and you can see the inside of who we are, what we're doing, how we're spending our money. We don't hide anything. We don't hide anything because we want you to see it. And every year I make this statement, and it's so interesting to me. There's always some visitor out here from Texas. Oh, no, no, just kidding. <laughs> some visitor out here that sends me an email and says, our elders don't let us see this information. They don't want us to see it. It's like, what else are they hiding? We've got nothing to hide. You're all welcome to elder meetings where you can hear us sometimes discuss and debate. Man, we got elders who can really debate and argue. It's wonderful. Transparency. Transparency starts with the individual and it begins to flourish and flower out into life. And if from the top we're hiding things from you, then it's only a matter of time before you start stepping back and going, ooh, I don't know if I'm going to trust you with my own life. Ooh, I don't know if I want to be a part of this church. Transparency is one of those things, that one of those qualities of a healthy church that should be present in everything that we do. Now, having said that, we're also careful to protect people. We don't just say, hey, uh, did you know so-and-so is out there committing adultery? We don't walk around saying those things. So that's, a, that's not healthy transparency either. That's very destructive. So we're also very protective of our people that are struggling. What, here, what happens here stays here. That's what I tell the teens whenever we go out for coffee. What happens at the table stays at the table. You're not going to tell our parents? Nope. If your parents want to know what you're doing, they can be parents and go find out. That's what I had to do. No, that's a transparent church. That's a healthy church. You see, the very definition of truth is that it's life-giving. What that means is the darkness has to be brought into the light to be transformed. And that's what transparency is all about. You don't have to tell everyone your sin. But at the same time, don't stay where you are. Don't do it. If your marriage is in trouble, our marriage has been trouble in trouble, Nancy and mine. We've had to go get help. If your personal life is in trouble, um, I've been in trouble. Some of you know my story. Well, I have coffee if you want, I'll tell it to you. Don't stay there. Don't stay stuck in the darkness, in shame, embarrassment, humiliation, because that's never going to get you where you want to go. And God never practices shame. If you notice that in the Bible, never says you should be ashamed of yourself. Never says that. So whatever it is that you're struggling with, we really want to help you on that pathway to redemption 
to bring about life. That's what we're here for. Now, have you noticed over the last several weeks, everything we've talked about starts with me as an individual. I have not fulfilled Scripture until me as an individual has taken it into the context of faith, where we together live life. And we as a church have not fulfilled Scripture until we take it into the community so we can present that compelling argument and example to the world of how life-giving our God is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's our God. That's our God. And that's what we need to be as a church. So I'll leave you with a question because we're going to have communion in just a second, uh, just a few minutes, and I'm going to let you have just a few seconds to lay before the Lord at the altar, whatever it is you're struggling with. Okay, whatever it is you're struggling with, it starts with the Lord. And if you need help, come talk to us. Okay, no judgment, no condemnation. Sometimes I laugh because you get yourselves in a big mess. But uh, that's it. Compassion, empathy, grace, all those things. Father, thank you for being the God that we always hoped you would be. But some of us struggle to believe it's true. Thank you for being a God who's very loving, joyful, who loves to laugh. A God who's kind, filled with goodness. Thank you that you are faithful even when we are faithless, Paul says. Thank you for self-control. Just being very careful how you wield your power and presence amongst us. Thank you for being the perfect God whom we can trust and follow. In your son's name we pray, Jesus, because he is our high priest representing us to you. In his name, amen.